Welcome to the inaugural edition of Drilling Deep, the latest podcast from FreightWaves FreightCast Offerings. I'm your host, John Kingston. We're going to model this show after a big grab bag with lots of stuff in it. We might talk about oil. That's uh, part of the reason we call the, the podcast Drilling Deep, because I know oil very well, and I write about it for Sonar, which is our market dashboard product at FreightWaves. But we might talk about trucks, and we might talk about rail, and we might talk about a whole lot of things, and we do it in a short enough period of time that we're not going to take up your whole day and we think you're going to walk away from it having learned something. But the title Drilling Deep gives us a lot of leeway. It means we can talk about a lot of other stuff, that oil, and it means we might be joined by any one of the huge number of fascinating people out there in the oil or transportation ecosystem who are involved in managing, creating, and altering that, that ecosystem. We're going to be joined by our first guest on Drilling Deep in just a few minutes. But we're going to get started today by I want to talk about something that is very significant for the entire trucking and transportation ecosystem, and that is the price of oil, the price of diesel, and what to watch for this week. And why is this week so significant? It's significant because OPEC is meeting in Vienna. Just about a year ago, that the group met again in Vienna. They almost always meet in Vienna. Uh, they used to sometimes alter it around, but now it's pretty much all Vienna where their headquarters is. And a year ago, they agreed to some pretty significant cuts in supply to try to prop up the market. Uh, actually, the price plummeted like a stone right after that, hit a, a recent all-time low on Christmas Eve. But Christmas Eve was very much a lump of coal for everybody. Stock markets were down. Everything was down. But anyway, from that meeting last year, the price of oil overall really didn't fall all that much, but it really didn't rise from the perspective of OPEC, I, I kind of go with the idea that the glass was a little more half full because I think if OPEC had not agreed to those cuts, we'd be looking at a much lower oil price. To think that it was half empty means you'd have to think there was room for the price to rise. And given how much U.S. oil production has climbed this year, several hundred thousand barrels a day, I think it's a tough sell to argue that the price should have been rising even further. It's also been interesting to sit here, though, in the past year watching oil for freight waves after more than 30 years watching oil for Platts and also for S&P Global, the, the Platts parent. Uh, oil and oil prices in the trucking and transportation sector are a bit of a double-edged sword. Obviously, cheaper diesel prices are good for truckers. They're particularly good for independent owner-operators who don't have the advantage of a fuel surcharge that they hope can be used to simply pass through their cost to the shipper the way a larger uh, carrier would have. Instead, the independent owner-operators have to hope that the rate that they book for whatever shipment will be adequate enough to cover their diesel costs. That is going to be easier if the price of diesel is down, and it's been very, very stable, really, for the past year. But when you look at the number of truck drivers, of rail cars, of any kind of water-going freight that's carrying oil or fracking sand or water for fracking, and you realize that energy is one of the biggest customers of transportation services in the country, and a declining price for oil is not going to be good for that particular sector. The U.S. rig count is a pretty good barometer of where the industry stands. It's down about 25% in the last years. That's actually not just the U.S., that's North America. That's a lot of jobs gone, a lot of rail cars sitting on the side, not carrying frac sand and other things, a lot of flatbeds that are not hauling the specialized equipment used in drilling, and you see the whole double-edged sword I referred to. There's a lot of trucking and transportation jobs disappearing as a result of that low price of oil. So OPEC has cut a lot of production in the last year, about 3 million barrels a day, I think was its biggest cut with a world oil market of about 100 million barrels a day. Pretty easy to do the percentage. That's about 3%. That may not seem like a lot, but if you've got a balanced market and you knock one side out by 3%, that is significant. 
So as a result of that, the, the reality is that most of the cuts came from Saudi Arabia. They, they, they basically kind of supported the whole group by slashing their own production by a lot. There are other countries that are over overproducing the quota they were giving given, and if they just produced to their quota in 2020, that would take care of the cuts that might be needed to balance the market. Those countries in particular are Iraq and Nigeria. So why is there a move on for more cuts after all the cuts that were made in 2019? Because all of the projections for 2020 of oil production growth relative to demand growth next year show a lot more supply and not anywhere near enough demand to suck it all up. There's even a whole new country that's producing. Just think of it. A country that didn't produce at all is now going to be a pretty significant producer. That country is Guyana. It's an amazing story. In a few years, if they if they hit all their targets, they're going to be producing one barrel of oil per day per person. No other country comes close to that. So that's the issue OPEC faces this week, and we're going to be watching it on freight waves. I'd also like to refer you to a sort of handy-dandy guide to a lot of the important numbers. I wrote it. It's on FreightWaves.com from last Saturday, November 30th. So just Google my name, John Kingston, then stick in there, OPEC, FreightWaves, and November 30th, and you should be able to come up with it. Uh, numbers don't do too well on a podcast, so we're not going to run by too many of them, but they all be right in front of you if you take a look at that story. So now we're going to make a big switch and bring on our first guest. It's great to have cheap diesel, but if the roads stink, that doesn't help too much if you're a trucker. So we've been talking about infrastructure forever. I say we, really, it's the collective we, the entire country, Congress, the trucking industry, you name it. The, the United States infrastructure is woefully lagging. And the transportation group at Reason Foundation, they think about it every single day. And I hate to simplify anybody's views, but let's just say it's fair to describe Reason as probably the biggest advocate of tolling as a means to paying for roads and bridges. They're bigger than pretty much anybody else around. That means they don't necessarily have a lot of friends in the trucking industry, but their argument is that they, they, they view tolling as the one reliable, significant flow of capital that will keep the roads, uh, roads up to, sh- up to speed. And, uh, so I had a chat with Baruch Feigenbaum of Reason about their views recently. He was fascinating as always, just like his colleague Bob Poole. Let's listen to it. So we're going to turn the podcast now over to our guest, Baruch Feigenbaum. He is the Assistant Director of Transportation Policy at Reason Foundation. That's a nonprofit think tank that, as it says, advances free minds and free markets. And the the reason that I wanted to have Reason on is because, uh, first of all, uh, Bob Poole is their sort of uh, their guru. He's been well known in the transportation field for quite some time. Uh, Bob was on Freightways Radio with me several months ago, and Reason always brings a very different approach to the question of how do you fund the nation's highways. The traditional method is, well, we'll raise some taxes, maybe some gasoline taxes, and we'll have the government do the whole thing. And obviously, Reason knows that the government is going to have a key role in this. These highways are owned by the government, obviously, uh, but they always take kind of a, I, I have always thought of sort of different uh, approach. And if you're a truck driver listening to this, you're probably not going to like what they say because they are also very big advocates for tolls. So Baruch, welcome to the uh, welcome to the podcast today. Well, thank you, and thanks for having me on, John. Okay, so you um, you put out your annual look at the state of the American highways uh, a couple of months ago. You do it from a very free market perspective. Uh, it was pretty depressing to read, quite frankly. So I'm going to give you a quote that kind of I think sums up what you found. In looking at the nation's highway system as a whole, there was a decades-long trend of incremental improvement in most key categories, but the overall condition of the highway system has worsened in recent years. This year, we see some improvement on structurally deficient bridges, 
but pavement conditions on rural and urban highways are declining. The rise in traffic fatalities is worrying, and we aren't making needed progress on traffic congestion in our major cities. So much focus on infrastructure the past few years. A lot of talk on the federal level, maybe some things getting done on the state level, Baruch, but how did we manage to sort of turn it around to the negative side? Sure. And I think that's a great question. And it really comes down to priorities uh, more than it comes down to funding. For the past 20 years, more or less, states have focused on what we call good repair, improving their roadway condition, getting rid of potholes. And that's why we've seen the improvement in the overall condition of roadways. But the past few years, that seems to have gone the other direction, and we think much of it has to do with using that funding on other projects, on transit, on what we call active transportation, walking and biking projects, which might be important, but are taking needed money away from roadways. Well, they're, they're not they're not just important. They're sexy, too. They, I mean, to, you know, to, to, to nobody cuts a ribbon on a repaved two-mile stretch of highway, but they cut a ribbon on a new trail, and they cut a ribbon on a new transit system. Yeah, that's a great point. And of course, uh, everything can be political at a certain level. And so obviously that ribbon cutting is a great photo op, whereas repaving a road is not a very good photo op. So this is all terrible outlook. It's probably no news to the drivers who are out there on the road. So uh, what is the next step? How do you turn this thing around? Let's face it. Congress today is a gridlock mess. It isn't getting anything done. Uh, and states are dependent to a large degree on federal funding. I know that you've advocated as many free market approaches toward nation's infrastructure as possible. Uh, what are some of the ones that, that can be brought to the table? Sure. And I think the point that the federal government is not going to come and save the states is a really key uh, point. We really haven't had much in terms of new policy at the federal level uh, for many years. There's talk of a reauthorization of the current transportation bill. But what the Senate is looking at is basically the same old thing that has gotten us more or less in this current problem. So we think states need to go ahead and take some initiative on them on themselves. Uh, we are supporters of tolling as a way to rebuild the interstate system. Interstate system is wearing out in many places. Uh, it's one of the reasons we think there's some issues with the pavement quality. There's also obviously congestion in many growing areas, and we think states need to go ahead and look at tolling their interstates to comprehensive rebuild them, really from the, the, the roadbed all the way up. We also think that states can make greater use of public-private partnerships, and many states have done that, particularly places like Florida, Virginia, Texas, even Pennsylvania, in order to tap private sector financing to help stretch that revenue further. But it's really not the federal government is here to save the day. It's states are the owners of the roadway systems. And we think it's time for states to go ahead and take a little bit more of a leadership role. Well, let's, let's first talk about tolling. You're saying tolling is something you advocate. But I know just recently in the last several months, there was an attempt to toll Interstate 81 through Virginia. That flopped. Uh, uh, the governor of Connecticut, Ned Lamont, has been pushing tolling up there. He doesn't seem to be getting anywhere with it. And for our audience here at Freight Waves, there's a particular concern because some of the tolling plans that have been discussed seem to think that only trucks are going to get tolled and cars are going to be exempt or they're going to get a rate so low that it's you know, I'm, I'm not going to say it's not going to make a difference, but trucks are supposed to carry the biggest burden. What 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 happened to just sticking a toll on a road? Maybe it's mileage based and everybody pays it. 
Yeah, I think that's a great point. And we actually have opposed, we opposed both the tolling uh, system in Virginia. And I think that's one reason it didn't go anywhere. And the truck only tolls that are in Rhode Island right now, under the idea that everybody needs to pay their fair share, cars and trucks. And this can't be some sort of scheme to stick it to out of state drivers. Uh, everyone needs to needs to pay proportionally. And so the tolling that we're looking looking at, we like to call it 21st century tolling. And it doesn't have toll booths. It has gantries. It is basically per mile tolling. So it's not like you're going to just go, you know, one stretch on a roadway and they're going to charge you an exorbitant amount of money. Uh, There's some protections to make sure that toll revenue is actually used on the roadway, not diverted to other things. It's really key that we get tolling right in this country. And we would not support some of the bad tolling proposals we've seen. Have you looked at much at where, where you have had, we've had elimination of toll booths and it's a combination of using some kind of an easy pass system, some kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, you know, the system in the car, easy pass. I know it's called other things in other places. Uh, and, and you get a, a camera system where you take uh, cameras of the license plates of the cars that go through that don't have that. Uh, there's a loss in revenue, obviously, because you can't go after everybody that, uh, that the, the, the camera got. Have you gotten any estimates on how big a loss that is? And maybe it's worth it. Maybe it's worth it in the saved traffic, the wasted time of traffic that goes away from everybody lining up at a toll booth. How's that system working so far from your perspective? Sure. So what we've seen is that for the most part, the waste is pretty minimal, generally less than about 5%, particularly in states where it's been around a little bit longer. Obviously, when it's first implemented, folks don't necessarily have those transponders, be it, be it Easy Pass or some of the system in other states. And so Thank it starts out a little higher. Thank you for saying transponder. That was the word I was looking for. My brain just wasn't getting it. Sure, sure. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's just it, it starts out a little bit higher, but it goes down. And there's so many advantages in terms of reducing congestion, reducing accidents and toll booths to the all electronic tolling. And in addition to the transponders, as you noted, a lot of states now allow people to pay by license plate, not just as a penalty, but as a regular system if they don't have the transponders because they realize not everybody does. So, uh we think that even though there's some waste, it's a better it's a better alternative than the toll booth option. All right now, let's talk about the public private partnerships. Okay, PPLs as they're known in that business, as opposed to three PLs in the trucking business, third party logistics. Uh, I'm going to kind of sum up what a what a PPL is, as far as I know. It's essentially where a state or some kind of a county, it could be some kind of level of government, contracts out with a third party entity in the private sector to do all the work. Uh, the difference in in my view in in terms of what happens over time is that the party that the, that that third party that gets contracted for to do the road work has doesn't just build the road and then goes home they have an obligation to keep that road up for i don't know 15 20 25 years and that's the difference between having a state doing it and then you know 10 15 years later the road falling apart but it falls victim to budget uh, budget maneuvers as opposed to the the, the public private partnership which they have to keep up the road that's part of their deal is that a definition that you would agree with yeah, I think that's a great way to characterize it. We we typically call them P3s now for the public-private partnership. And that advantage of the private sector or private partner having to maintain the road in a good condition is really critical because that avoids the problems with maintenance that we're seeing right now across the country. 
A couple other advantages include the ability to transfer the risk. Um, we saw when there was the Great Recession, there were some uh, traffic forecasts that were not is optimistic or did not turn out as well as was initially forecasted. And in that case, it was the private sector who was on the hook for any decrease in revenue, not taxpayers, which I think is, is pretty critical. And another thing we see is innovation. I know in the, the Washington, D.C. area, when Virginia built the I-495 hot lanes uh, around the Capitol Beltway, they were able to be built with the private sector at a total cost of 25% less. It was a savings of, I believe, almost a billion dollars over what they would have if the state had done it. And it was just a matter of, of certain types of innovations, narrowing the shoulders in certain places, doing other good things. Uh, not really anything that um, would impact safety, of course, but just some different ways of thinking uh, that we really need in transportation today. Right, because the critics, though, of the of the three Ps would say that you're foregoing the ability of governments to borrow at rates cheaper than anybody else. Uh, that that's the main critique that I've heard. Sure, and and so the answer to that is we have in this country what are called private activity bonds, which provide for private projects that are in the public interest, like these type of managed lanes, the same type of low, uh, basically no interest that a municipal government would get if it borrows. And so that goes ahead and closes that gap, um, which would be the case if we didn't have private activity bonds. I was looking at some of the some of the conclusions in your report and looking at the states that were doing really well on their road structure. Uh, let's just talk about some of them. Uh, you gave North Dakota really high marks as far as the condition of their roads. Now, my view with not having been up there, <laughs> I'm just taking a guess from a distance, is that you think about all the oil and gas activities up there, all those heavy trucks riding on those roads. Those roads are taking a beating probably more than certainly more than 15 years ago they were doing. And yet you say they're holding up well. Is that because the state is so flush with cash that they're keeping up the quality of the roads ahead of all the, the damage and all the, the demand for, for road space that they're getting out of the oil and gas business there? Well, we don't think it's that specifically because when we look at the overall gas tax and spending in North Dakota, it's been relatively consistent over the last 10 years. What we think it is, is that the state has a system where they are able to maintain their roadways at a relatively low cost. And they're also able to have what we would call a good fatality rate for an for a rural state because there tends to be higher fatalities in rural states because people are going faster. And it's really that combination of low cost, high quality and low fatality rate that gets North Dakota its number one ranking. All right, so some of the states beyond specifics like North Dakota, what kind of characteristics do you find in the states that are doing well where, where their roads are in pretty good shape? Sure. So it's really a couple different things. First is Many of the states that are doing well have a cost-benefit approach to selecting transportation projects. So rather than just selecting projects by geographic region or for political reasons, they put data into a cost-benefit analysis and see which types of improvements would actually get them the best results. And two of the best states at that are Virginia and North Carolina. Virginia, I think, is number two, and North Carolina is in the top 20. So that's really helpful. 
we found that states that use innovative delivery methods, uh, public-private partnerships, but even design builds, which would be uh, not even really a P3, but different from a design bid build, because they're able to go ahead and get lower overall costs, and it appears better pavement quality over the long term, those states tend to have better uh, better systems. Yeah, let's, let's, I'm going to interrupt. Brooke. Let's talk about what a design build is. From Again, sure. I'm going to I'm going to give you the uninformed definition, and you tell me if I'm wrong. Essentially, the same company designs it, and the same company builds it. And I know that based being based here in New York, that is the process that was used for the replacement for the Tappan Zee Bridge, which was a mess, uh, and the bridge got up in a reasonably good amount of time. And I believe that that's also the process that's being used right now for the rebuild of LaGuardia Airport. So by having everything under the same entity, uh, that is providing a lot of efficiencies. Is that a fair definition? That Right. That is a great definition. And the alternative would be a design bid build where you're having separate entities do that project, um, the different steps, and that tends to drive up costs and also, interestingly enough, lower overall quality. Right. Now, the other thoroughly depressing thing in your study (laughs) was the rise in traffic fatalities after years and years of improvements, all sorts of new safety safety features in cars. Uh, and year in, year out, we also did things like a war on uh, on drunk driving, and yet it's turning up. I, I'm, I'm my my answer would be distracted driving. I can't think of anything else that would cause fatality rates to rise. Do you have any other possibilities? Any other uh, any any other villains in this? Yeah, we 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 think that distracted driving is the main reason. As you've pointed out, cars are safer than ever. They can braking, they can stop quicker. There's airbags. There's a seatbelt um, usage is is higher than it's ever been. And so, distracted driving is is really the one thing that's left. And uh, it's it's definitely a problem as fatality rates have gone up the last few years. I know for our audience in the trucking business, do you have any good news for them? They're the ones that are on this road. Uh, it doesn't sound like you've got a lot of good, uh, a lot of good news. You've got distracted driving rising. You've got tolling that's going on out there is aimed strictly at trucks. You've got roads that have deteriorated more. Do you have anything good to say? <laughs> well, I guess I would say it is somewhat state dependent. So depending on what states there are, uh, states in the top 10, which are, you know, very as varied as Virginia and Missouri and Montana and Maine, uh, they're getting better bang for the buck. They're not seeing some of these problems there. I think the other way to look at it is where there's a problem, there's maybe an opportunity to rethink how we do things. I think for many years, these diversions, uh, both to, to transit and recreational trails, as well as to just general budget, were kind of accepted. And well, the DOTs are doing a good job, so we're just not going to worry about it because they've got XX money. And I think what we're seeing now is the DOTs have been squeezed about as far as they can go. And so maybe they're, we can actually get some political support to end these diversions, which I think particularly in some of the worst states we see, places like New York, New Jersey, California, Massachusetts, uh, can can really help improve the system. How much does congestion benefit from better roads? There's still the same number of cars out there, you would think, uh, but that I, I'm guessing that might be a simplistic observation on my part. Yeah, it, it's it's a complicated answer, and and I guess what I would say is there's benefits to economic activity from widening roadways, even if congestion is the same, because you're having extra folks that can actually get to jobs or people who might not be able to reach a job within say 20 minutes, but can do so with the roadway widening. We and then, do- 
critic, the critics would say that the, 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 the opposite happens. You widen the roadway, more traffic comes in, and you're right back to the same level of congestion. <clears throat> right. And to those critics, I would say that is why in many cases we are fans of pricing because we've seen that with pricing that induced demand type of effect, which is what they call it, um, is much less. I still think there's a benefit to uh, widening without pricing in terms of the increased economic activity. But obviously, if you're in a major metro area like New York or L.A., there's a lot of unmet demand. And so solving congestion long term is is a challenging issue. Right Now, in in areas that have done a lot of private toll roads, uh, like you mentioned, Virginia, I know Austin's got some toll roads. So does Houston. These are ones that I'm just familiar with because I've driven on them. What kind of benefit are you seeing to traffic movement in the area? Sure. So I think that the biggest point I would make is that all of these are optional. Nobody is forced to use them. And so in the in the cases where their additional capacity, which is, is all of them in those examples, uh, we're actually seeing that reduced congestion in the non-priced lanes as well and giving people an option, uh, which we think is important. Uh, there's also some bipartisan support there because uh, we can operate bus transit service in these priced lanes that's much more reliable than it would otherwise be. We've also seen with the public-private partnerships that the quality of these roadways tends to be better. There tends to be fewer potholes, um, which is is good for the car suspension system and and trucks and maybe not so good for the mechanics. But uh, I think that's an important benefit as well. Yeah, we're keeping mechanics in business just as there's kind of a squeeze on the number of mechanics out there. At least at least there are a number of diesel mechanics. Anyway, Baruch, Baruch Feigenbaum, the Assistant Director of Transportation Policy at Reason, I want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. Great. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Thanks for that, Baruch. Terrific as always. And that's going to bring us to the close of our inaugural podcast of Drilling Deep. We'll be back next week. We'll talk about what OPEC did. We'll be keeping our eye on the news and we'll be speaking with, well, I'm not sure who we're going to be speaking with yet. That's the great thing about podcasts. You can be nice and flexible and see who the newsmakers are and see what the news stories are. So let's see how the week pans out and what's going on as we head toward the end of the year. For Freight Waves Freightcast, I'm John Kingston, and this is Drilling Deep.